0: Hi, and welcome to Cause Pods. I'm your host, Matthew Passy. Here at Cause Pods, we have one simple mission, to highlight the amazing folks who are using podcasts as a way to raise awareness for good causes, whether it's a nonprofit they work with, a charity they support, a social justice campaign they're championing, a medical condition they're battling, or someone who's just looking to make a positive impact on their local community, state, country, or the world. These are podcasters with a positive mission. Along with raising awareness for our guests' favorite cause, we're also going to see if we can raise some money to support their efforts. So make sure you check out the show notes for each episode at causepods.org to learn more about what they're doing and how to help them achieve their goals. Joining me today on Causepods is Dr. Richard Schuster. He is the host of the Daily Helping Podcast. This is a show that's going to help improve basically help anyone improve themselves in a lot of different ways. And he's supporting the Every Kid Rocks charity. Dr. Schuster, thank you so much for joining us here on Cause Pods today.
1: It is great to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
0: So tell us a little bit about the Daily Helping podcast, what it's all about, why it was started, and who you're looking to help out.
1: So the Daily Helping kind of came out of this evolution of who I was a long time ago. And so in my early 20s, I bid on and won a contract with the Department of Defense, you know, not selling weapons or anything like that, but it was a software-related deal. And that went to my head very, very quickly. I think Tony Stark, probably, if I had to... Model a character in movies well, got who, the goatee, who I wanted
0: to be. So I could see it, yeah. Right, got the goatee, <laughs> that's right.
1: I didn't have it then, actually, but yeah, the goatee had the uh, DOD contract and was ready for this amazing life of fast cars, no commitments of any kind in my life to getting married or having kids, just really getting stuff for the sake of having stuff. And as I was building the corporation, the IT consulting firm doing this work. One day on what was otherwise an ordinary Saturday for me, I was nearly killed in a car accident and I broke my spine. I tore or nearly tore rather most of the ligaments in my neck, suffered um, some real severe injuries. And so Now that I'm a doctor and I understand a little bit about the brain, what's interesting is that for a lot of people who experience near-death experiences, what the brain does, there's this mechanism that slows down time. Kind of think like Neo in The Matrix where he's looking and he sees these bullets kind of whizzing by him in slow motion. So as the accident went, I made a left-hand turn, and then I see this car screaming at me full speed. And so from the amount of time where that guy slammed into me sent me into oncoming traffic after my airbag deploys. And then I get hit again, and I get ricocheted into a telephone pole, which is ultimately what stopped my momentum. Maybe three seconds? But yet, in that amount of time, all of that was in slow motion to me. I remember very clearly seeing the center console crush into my spine and and having this conversation with myself that I was about to die. And it wasn't the type of conversation like Uncle Scrooge in... uh, or not, Uncle Scrooge. The, Ebenezer the Scrooge, Ducktales. Ebeneezer. Ebenezer Scrooge in in a Christmas story. Like it wasn't like, dear God, if you let me live, I'm going to turn over a new leaf and I'm going to give Christmas presents to orphan boys or girls. It wasn't like that. I knew I was dead, and so like once you've come to terms with with that, the next thoughts that start rolling through your head are this evaluation of your life, and so that's what happened to me, and and I was overwhelmed immediately with guilt and shame. Number one, that my parents were going to get a call that I was dead. And that was unbelievable in terms of a burden. And then secondly, thinking about my life. And what have I really accumulated? Had a cool car, had a cool watch, bounced around Europe a little bit and done some really fun things, but I had nothing to show for what I had done. And and I was not proud of myself. And so spoiler alert, I, I did not die, but it took me a long time to recover. And I went back to work and nothing was ever the same for me again. I just was miserable. And I eventually walked away from that. I was scared out of my mind to do that, because I had no idea what my future held. I was fearful of all the people I was going to let down when I told them that I was not doing this anymore, because there were a lot of people cheering me on, family in particular. uh, And I was really ashamed of that. And through a series of events, I wound up speaking about internet safety to high schools. And that led me to being approached by a guidance counselor at one of the schools where I spoke. And they asked me to mentor a kid who was an at-risk kid. He was in the seventh grade when I got him at the time was biting people. That's pretty unusual for seventh graders, right? <laughs> and so, at that, Yeah, at
0: that age, it should have uh, yeah, stopped by then.
1: <laughs> for sure. So I was working with this kid, and I'm not going to be so arrogant as to say I turned his life around, but I was a change element. I was a change agent that helped, and that felt really good. And so that led me to go back to graduate school. And so now all of a sudden, I'm in my mid-30s, and I'm going to school, and I am studied social work, and I worked with victims of Hurricane Katrina who lost everything. And that was incredibly powerful for me. I worked a lot with children and then ultimately wanted to go further. And I became a clinical psychologist and I received advanced training in forensic and neuropsychology, which which I know are big fancy words. It just means a little bit more knowledge about the brain and you talk about it in a courtroom setting. And as I started practicing, I was grateful for that, but really wanted to have a broader impact. And so that's, here's like five minutes later to the answer to your question. That's why I created the Daily Helping Podcast because I wanted to be able to have a much larger impact than I could have working with patients individually. And so the show's mission is to help people become the best versions of themselves. And that's aspirational, right? You're not gonna wake up on Tuesday, three weeks from now and get a certificate in the mail that says you are the best version of who you are. So we're always consistently striving, achieving to be more, to learn more, to do better. Although the show's movement is something that's very tangible and that I'm I'm the most excited about. And our our show's movement is called the hashtag MyDailyHelping movement, where we encourage people to commit random acts of kindness every day and post it in their social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping. And so there's a little science that I've sneakily built into that. And so from a a neurobiological standpoint, if you took two people and person A was given $1,000 and person B gave a $1,000 to somebody else, and hooked up real-time diagnostic imaging to their brains, what you would see is that the same parts of the brains light up. And while it is the case that from a neurodevelopmental standpoint, we are programmed, we have evolved to feel good when we help other people, society has us very focused on ourselves, right? We're seeing now cell phones that are coming out with like six cameras in the front so that we can have the most high D or 4K selfies. Like we're a selfie world right now. And I'm not, I'm not hating on selfies, but what I am telling you is that we have been conditioned To focus on how awesome we are. And as a consequence of that, we're spending less energy focusing on how can we add value and help others. So I'm hopeful that through my show's movement and through the amazing guests that I'm privileged to have on, that we can really open some eyes and start changing that a little bit.
0: It's an incredible mission. It's an incredible objective to help people see the world in a different light and get them to not just do it, but to share it and show others. And hopefully we can all learn from that, experience it, be encouraged by it, and then take part in it. I kind of want to go back to one thing that you said. It's not really related to the show, but it just it stuck out and it fascinated me. It's something that I always think about. During the accident, one of the things that went through your head was this idea of guilt and shame. And it's so fascinating to me that we get a sense of guilt if we think that we're going to pass sooner than we should, that if we don't you know, live to the ripe old age of 95, that if we go early, that not that we're afraid, not that we're sad, but we feel guilty and ashamed by it. And I wonder in your studies and in your learning, like what is that all about?
1: Well, there's certainly cultural components to that, of course. And every culture, Western cultures view death very differently than Eastern cultures, for example. In my case, it wasn't so much the guilt that i was dying it was the guilt of the consequences that my death was going to have on the people that mattered the most to me and i think that that's probably what most people would agree with and that would resonate with them and if you think about right now like if you're all sitting here listening to this and you imagine that an hour from now you're going to be dead you're gone but it's the impact like what vacuum what black hole do you leave in your wake when we're gone and i think that's the thing that most people have trouble with, and it's one of the things when people have worked a lot with people who you know are suicidal and it's what you do if you're a psychologist that's going to come in in front of you and the one thing that you hear most often why they're afraid to do it is because they're guilty about their mother or their uncle or somebody finding them or their body or finding the note. So guilt plays a a huge part of that. And so there's different reasons as to why. As I said, there's cultural reasons. Um, Certainly in the Judeo-Christian world, there is massive religious reasons. There are tenets of major religions that basically tell you that your soul is damned if you die in the wrong way or if you didn't live a righteous life. There are institutional fears that have been Passed down to us through multiple generations regarding death and what that means.
0: Getting back to the show, so you have this idea you want to not only for yourself, but for others, make the world a better place, get people to encourage making the world a better place. Why then did you want to take this idea, this project to podcasting specifically?
1: Podcasting was something that was accessible, to, is accessible to anybody. I mean, we live in a really fantastic age where anybody can. Get some cans and get their mic and their pop filter. And all of a sudden, you know, they're out there spreading their message. It afforded me the opportunity to do that. It just seemed like the right medium. It seemed like something that I could do. And I don't have any Hollywood connections. I couldn't call Dr. Phil. Like I couldn't call Oprah. I couldn't get myself on television. (laughs) So I got myself in podcasting. But what's interesting about having the podcast, you know, you and I have met a couple of times because of podcasting, and the podcast itself has created relationships for me that I would have never had otherwise, that there's no way that I would have been able to have those interactions, build the relationships, and as such, be able to push forth the initiatives that I have, not only through the podcast, but, you know, through the psychological assessments that I do. We didn't talk about that, and my charity that helps children. So the podcast really became a launching point for me to be able to leverage the recognition that I have and achieve these other goals that I had created that help
0: others. But I mean, you could have done that. We live in an amazing world where you can create and produce and publish and market content in a lot of different ways and have success doing it. You could have done videos, you could have done just social. you could have been blogging. But was there something specifically about audio and digital audio that was compelling that helped you to tell your story in a more effective way than other platforms might have?
1: I don't know if there's a sexy answer to that. The, the, <laughs> the, the, the honest truth was I was a fan of podcasting and got connected with a really amazing production team who does everything for me. And it just kind of evolved into its own thing. I, I wouldn't say that I really sat down and, and cognitively worked out Does it make more sense for me to do this on YouTube or Facebook or podcasting? It just kind of evolved.
0: So now that you have the podcast, what has it enabled for you? Specifically doing it through this medium, what kind of doors has it opened? What kind of experience have you had? You know, what are the things that you've loved about it?
1: There's so many things. And I'm so grateful for this experience. One of the coolest moments ever, and I will find hard pressed to top this, was Around a year ago, I got an email from a kid who had reached out to me and informed me that he had obtained a gun and he was going to kill himself. And he was getting ready to compose a suicide tweet. And prior to doing so, I popped up in his social media feeds. I was interviewed by John Lee Dumas, an entrepreneur on fire. And he listened to that episode. And then he put the gun down and he went to my website. And then he binge listened all night long to my show. And he wrote me the following morning and he said, yesterday I wanted to kill myself, but because of you, not only do I want to live, but I want to start a podcast for people who are suffering from depression so that they know that there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. And I I helped him with that. And I did not create my podcast to prevent suicide, but that happened. And that's unbelievable. Another really crazy example is I started doing episodes I do on every Veterans Day, where I will spotlight the story of a a veteran who's courageous enough to share what they've been through, and then I will shine the light on a 501c3, which specifically helps veterans who have experienced trauma. And as a result of that, that led to some conversations, and now I'm in talks again 20-something years later with the Department of Defense about selling an assessment and treatment system for post-traumatic stress for veterans that myself and a colleague have been creating for quite some time, and there was some serendipity around that ha- how that happened. Um, there are others, but those are like the two biggest things that kind of top of mind presented to themselves solely as a result of the podcast. I mean, there are countless amazing relationships, people that I now consider my friends that I have met through podcasting. And it's a really, you know, you're part of this community. It's an exceptional community. What I like about it, and particularly having come from a corporate background before I went into postgraduate training, was coming from the world of IT consulting, Somebody would have killed your grandmother if they thought they could get an extra 2% margin or cut you out of a deal or something like that. It's very, very cutthroat, and that was one of the reasons why I was all too happy to leave the corporate world. And yet in podcasting, everybody's very supportive. I have run into very few people, and I know they're out there, but I have run into very few people, including people who are exceptionally well-known and successful in this space, and they're the most gracious. How can I help you? I think maybe because it's such a young industry compared to some of the other mediums that there's more of a collaborative spirit that I have found through it, but it has been it's the best hour of my week for sure. I love recording I'm grateful for the guests that I have uh, It's a lot of fun, and it has, as I said, opened some pretty remarkable doors that wouldn't have opened otherwise.
0: That's so incredible, going back to the kid who heard your story and Not only did it save his life, but now he's trying to do good in the world through podcasting as well. It's just, that is just awesome. And yeah, podcasting is the one space where we are somewhat competing for the same. People. We all are trying to get the same objective. We all want as many listeners as possible, but people can listen to as many podcasts as they want. And so you're right, we're rarely actually in competition with each other.
1: I don't consider that I have any competitors in this space. And I don't say that to mean like I'm this arrogant, amazing, better than everybody else podcaster. What I mean in saying that is I view all my other fellow podcasters as colleagues and collaborators, not competitors, even if they're in the same space. I mean, in the personal development space that I'm in, It's a pretty saturated marketplace. I've been fortunate enough to stand out a little bit, one, because I'm a doctor, and two, because I've gained some notoriety in the media. Once I started getting interviewed by Cosmo and NBC and some of those places, as a psychology expert, that opened a lot of doors for me as well. But I don't view any other podcaster as a competitor, nor do I worry about, like, oh, you know, like, they got X number of downloads and they post. Like, I don't care. I just, I'm happy for everybody. The podcast listeners unlike TV viewers, I can't remember where I read this statistic, but those who consume podcasts are likely to consume a lot of podcasts. You know, They're not just going to listen to one. And so somebody listening to your show does not at all take away from somebody listening to mine or somebody else's. It's really cool
0: in that way. So tell us a little bit more about how all this kind of led you to Every Kid Rocks.
1: So that came out, directly came out of the podcast and it was really funny. So I had interviewed well over a year and a half ago, Bob Berg, the go-giver. And he was my first, quote unquote, I did the air quotes for this listening at home, really big guest. And so I was very self-conscious in the beginning of doing this. And I would ask every guest, so, you know, how do you think it went? That sort of thing to get feedback and say, how can I be better? And I interviewed Bob. For whatever reason, we did this interview at night. It was like 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. And so my kids were really, really young then. So my wife was already like just about passed out upstairs as I was doing this. And so Bob said to me, he said, you know, I do this every day. And I'm not just blowing smoke here. He's like, you are really good at what you do. And if you stick with this, you're going to help a lot of people. And I was like so fired up from that. Like I like run up the stairs and I bust in the bedroom door and I just like my wife like Bob Berg thinks I'm good at podcasting. (laughs) And so then it was just like the stream of consciousness. I I think this podcast is really going to be successful. And won't it be great when it is if we can take some of the money that we earn from doing it and cut a check back to our son's old preschool. And earmark that money for kids like him that just need a push for speech, PT, and OT. And I got chills. And, and before I, I finish the story, do you mind if I take a step back and kind of give some context to this? Yeah, please. So prior to me being a podcaster and when I was still finishing my training, what you're required to do in if you're studying neuropsychology is what's called a two-year postdoctoral residency. And so in this training... I was working through a clinic that had relationships through Joe DiMaggio Hospital in Miami, which is where I was at the time, and the Cleveland Clinic. And so I was working with kids through adults. And at the time my wife was pregnant with our first kid. And one day I get a call. I'm seeing a patient and it was somebody from my wife's place of employment. And she's a pediatric occupational therapist by trade. And they tell me that your wife has collapsed. She can't move. She's in tremendous pain and She was rushed to the hospital. So um, that's not good. And so I leave what I'm doing and I rush over to the hospital. And so we get there. And by the time I got there, because it was the opposite side of town in Miami, you can't get anywhere very quickly. I meet her and they had already run all the tests, but the doctor hadn't come to see us yet. And so when the doctor comes to see us, he was white as a ghost. And, you know, you could see it in his eyes. You knew that something was wrong. And then he said to us. I have good news and I have bad news, which is worse than bad news, I think. (laughs) And so the good news is, he said, the reason why you're in so much pain as he's talking to my wife is because your son was kicking your sciatic nerve. That's extremely painful for anybody that's experienced that, but is of no danger to a mother or unborn child. It just sucks. Well, here's the crazy part. He said, however, he said, we did all our routine evaluations and What we've discovered is that you have a pinhole-sized hole in your cervix, and you've been leaking amniotic fluid throughout the entirety of your pregnancy. This is the 31st week of pregnancy. And he said, had you not come in today, your son would have suffocated to death within the next 12 hours. Oh, my God. And so, you know, we're sitting there. Tears are streaming down our face. We're shocked. We don't know what to say. I believe my son saved his own life. I really do. And I think he was just kind of kicking to draw the attention. I don't know what his purpose is in this world yet, but I know it's going to be special. And so I kind of gave a little spoiler there. He he lived. <laughs> <Thank God. laughs> uh, but what happened was, so the shorter version of this is they put her, she remained on bed rest for the rest of the pregnancy with fluids, heavy fluids. And, you know, I was like literally like constantly, I was like a courier of Gatorade between Costco and my wife like nonstop. And so he was born at 37 weeks and delivered via emergency cesarean section. And so what ended up happening there was, while he had enough amniotic fluid to live, which is great stuff, his head was wedged for those last six weeks, plus under her rib cage, all cranked all the way to the left. So if you were, you're doing this at home, don't do this if you're driving, turn your head all the way to the left to the point where it hurts, and imagine being stuck like that for six weeks. So when he was born, his head was misshapen because it was under the ribs, He was unable to turn his head at all to center, which is referred to as midline for the medical term. And while that may not sound like a big deal, well, the misshapen head obviously sounds like a big deal, but not being able to turn your head, the issue with that, that condition is called torticollis. And why it's significant in a child that age is neurodevelopmentally, the way that our brains work is impulses for most activities run from the left side of our brain to the right, And vice versa, it's called contralateral in terms of the way that brain signals flow. And so because of my kid having his head cranked, he was unaware that he had a right side of his body for the first eight months of his life because he was unable to—the motor, the crawling, the touching, everything flows together and helps a child create the blueprint for their motor and sensory development. And so he had tremendous, tremendous issues. And so at the time, as a resident, I was making a big fat $36,000 a year, working 80 hours a week. So you do the math there. I mean, it's like pretty bad. (laughs) And, And I certainly didn't have the bandwidth to go work more than I was. And I often took work home with me. I was always, always working. So we had to get him help. And so we had to get him a helmet to fix his head. And where they do a mold, they do like a 3D mold of the kid's head and then they create this foam helmet. You know, Most people have seen kids with, it was cool, we got to decorate it with Captain America's symbol and all that. But we paid $8,000 for that that we didn't have. So that went on a credit card. And then he needed speech therapy and physical therapy and occupational therapy. And so we got more credit cards. And so my wife and I are pretty responsible people financially, or we were, up until that point in time, but we did the only thing we could do to get our kid help. And so certain states have these programs where, if you in fact, all states have them, but they run them a little bit differently. I shouldn't say some have them. And the one in Florida, basically what happened was they sent somebody to our house to evaluate our child. And so if a kid is under the age of two, the states will provide some degree of assistance depending on where he is. Now, My child had a lot of motor delays. I couldn't walk and whatnot, but he was really, really smart because his mother's smart, right? So he had these test scores that the overall aggregate scores, when everything kind of got averaged together, his scores were a little too high to get the kind of help that he really needed. And so there we were just supplementing this out of pocket. And at least for him, he had a father who was studying neuropsychology and a mother that's a pediatric occupational therapist. So we knew more than the average bear did in terms of what our kid needed. But financially, it destroyed us at the time to get him the help that he needed. And then moreover, when he turned one and we wanted to shift him from daycare into a preschool and actually start an educational curriculum, we were turned down by practically every school we went to. And the reason why is they were afraid, these schools, from a liability standpoint, that because my one-year-old son was unable to walk like everybody else in his class, that if he got stepped on and injured, that we would sue them. And it got to the point where I literally went to one school. I was like, look, I'll sign... At my own expense, I'll hire an attorney, draft a waiver of liability so that if my kid has stepped on, I'm not suing you. And I mean, it was absurd anyhow, but I wouldn't give up. My wife and I would not give up. And finally, that 20th school was willing to take him. And not only did that school take him and put him with one-year-olds, but his teacher, who I thanked in person years later many times, was incredible. And so when my son's therapist would tell my wife that he needed more sensory input on his feet, they would text Pictures that day of him at a sensory table getting shaving cream and on his feet and and doing that kind of work. And my son didn't just catch up, he exploded. And now, today, um, he's six years old. He's beautiful. He's perfect in every imaginable way. And I'm sure I'm a little biased because I'm a dad. But to flash forward to the story, was as I was telling my wife about this idea about giving money back to his school after Bob Berg said that he liked my stuff, I got this epiphany in which I knew immediately, like I couldn't even finish the statement to my wife, I ran downstairs and I got on GoDaddy and typed in Every Kid Rocks and it was available and I bought the domain and then I sent an email to my attorney moments after that. And so we're going to start a 501c3. We're going to raise money so that schools can contract with local providers that they're already using to provide kids time-limited speech, physical, and occupational therapy so that they can reach their true potential, make it happen. And I hit send. And eight months later, the government granted me my 501c3 status, and now we're off to the races. So, but again that kind of came out of the podcast and even more so because I'm in the podcasting space. It's one thing to go to, you know, another podcast and say, hey man, you know, put me on your show and uh, sell my book, right? Like we all get that. We all get approached by people, like 10 people a week who want me to promote their coaching service or something on the daily helping. But nobody's going to say no to helping kids, right? And I don't take a dollar from the charity. I want all that money to go to kids. But Every Kid Rocks was completely born out of the podcast, and it has been really, really cool. We're starting to look at some other ways that we can help kids above and beyond speech, PT, and OT, but we're pretty unique. Uh, There really isn't, there's a lot of charities that are out there that do provide services, and God bless them, and I wish there were more but we're really the only one in the space that's doing this in a time-limited capacity. So for those kids, because there's a lot more of the kids that just need a little boost. Maybe they need five sessions of speech to work on a speech impediment, or maybe they just need 10 sessions of OT to improve their fine motor functioning or coordination or something like that. Those are the kids that are the ones who fall through the cracks because their test scores aren't low enough where the schools are mandated by law to do anything about it, and they're often quiet. But those are the kids who are at greater risk for self-esteem issues and Depression and anxiety because they don't understand Like, why is it harder for them? Why is it harder for them to do the stuff that kids, their classmates sitting next to them can do effortlessly? And so our interventions tend to be for kindergarten through third grade. And you, know, you catch them when they're young and you can make that change. You can ride a kid's whole ship. They're, the whole rest of their life path changes because of that. Wow.
0: That's a lot of good that you were doing there in the world. I don't even know what else I could add to it. What else I could ask you? Cause I think you just have an incredible story. You tell it so well incredible missions, both in the podcast and here on the 501c3 on the charity side. And we're going to encourage everyone to check them out, donate, listen, read, do everything they can to learn more about what you're doing and support you in any way that they can. The last thing I always like to ask folks in your position is for somebody else who is thinking about launching a podcast to support a cause for somebody who maybe even has one out there and they feel like they're struggling. What is your best piece of advice? What's the one thing you would encourage them to do that could help them out.
1: I would say this, even if your podcast isn't directly supporting a cause that you believe in, the likelihood is there is that organization out there that is so desperate for a light to be shined on them so that people can know that they're around. And so as a podcaster, you have a privilege, you have the privilege of leveraging your show to put a spotlight on those people that otherwise have no way of doing so. And so what I would say is get out on Google and find those organizations. If they're already out there, if they don't exist, you know, you create your own. But if those entities already exist, talk to them, see how you can add value to them, see how you can use your show. Because if you believe in their cause – by helping them you achieve your goal. So that's what I would say, you know, leverage those relationships and approach from a position of adding value and you will absolutely be successful.
0: We have been chatting with Dr. Richard Schuster. He is the host of the Daily Helping podcast, which of course we'll have a link to here in the show notes, here on Cause Pods. and he's the creator of Every Kid Rocks, the 501c3 that is just looking to help every kid out there who needs a boost to reach their true potential. Anything you can to support his efforts would be greatly appreciated. Dr. Richard Schuster, thank you so much for joining us here on Cause Pods today.
1: It's been great. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Cause Pods. Again, if you've been inspired by the work of our guests, please check out the show notes in your podcast app or at causepods.org. There you will find links to their work and a special donation link to support their favorite efforts. From there, you can also follow and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. And remember, if you have a CausePod and want to join me for an interview, please check out causepods.org and fill out the interview request form. If approved, we'll schedule you for a chat and share the amazing work you're doing with the CausePod audience. Thanks again, and see you next time on CausePods.